and look to the Lord together in prayer. Now, Father, as we come before you, we come before you as people that, as we acknowledge week by week, entered into this world sinful by nature. Now, our natural tendency is to substitute ourselves for you. At the cross of Jesus Christ, you substitute yourself for us. As we explore this section that deals with substitutions and the servant of the Lord who became the substitute, we understand how he was so perfectly engineered in eternity past that he would be both human and divine, two natures in one person, to fulfill the purpose of being the ultimate substitute. And he would do so as the servant of the sovereign God, while he himself is sovereign in all ways. So it's an astounding passage you've given us, and we want to be able to examine it, and we want to be able to apply it, and to do it faithfully and accurately. So, Father, in these minutes together, as we are exploring your word, Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. When Doug Meelan and his family moved to Brazil's section where the Fumio Indians presided, he describes his, his experience as going through four significant stages of being able to impact them with the gospel. He calls the first stage the white man stage. Now, this was not a complimentary term that the Indians gave to him because they had been exploited in prior generations. Their homes had been burned. They'd been robbed of their lands, so they thought and discussed among themselves. He was simply the white man. Now, how do you overcome something like that? He recalls a time when he was able to move from stage one, the white man stage, to a second stage, the respectable white man stage. Because he began to learn the language of the people and began to help the people by offering them medicine and meeting physical needs. And so they began to see that there was something different about this man. He's not merely dubbed the white man. He was going to be labeled the respectable white man. But it didn't end there. There was a third stage in his experience that he describes. That when the Milans began to adopt the customs of the people, they began to embrace and learn the language of the people. This group began to provide greater acceptance, and they referred then to Doug as the white Indian man. A connections developing. You have to be very patient to be able to grip the heart of people. 
but there was still a fourth stage to come. As he puts it, one day I was washing the dirty, blood-caked foot of an injured, phony old boy when I overheard a bystander say to another in their own native language, Whoever heard of a white man washing an Indian's foot before? Certainly, this man is from God. And from that day on, whenever Doug would go into an Indian home, it would be announced beforehand, here comes the man sent by God. The 42nd chapter of the book of Isaiah includes and encompasses the first of what are known as the four servant songs. The servant songs. Eight centuries prior to Jesus entering into Bethlehem to die at Calvary, he would be provided for and proclaimed as the suffering servant. The four servant songs, beginning with chapter 42, leading into 49, onward into 50, and ending in that great chapter 53, where Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, dies in our place for our sins. We grip the heart of a Doug Meelan to find a way to serve others, bearing in mind what Mark 10 verse 45 would use to describe Jesus Christ. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Well, now, what you and I find here is the 42nd chapter begins to unfold our ways in which and aspects within the suffering servant is going to be able to minister to people. What I want to do is to draw two significant aspects of the servant of the Lord to develop here and see how it relates not only to our lives, but how this passage connects to the Go Tell It on the Mountain song we sang a few minutes ago. In the first, verses 1 through 9, we're going to put like this, that regarding the servant of the Lord, I want you to first note with me what is promised about him. Notice in chapter 42, it begins with these words. Behold, my servant. Now, the word servant was used in that time period to describe a special envoy sent by an emperor into new territories. What God is doing eight centuries prior is prophetically announcing that he is about to send a special envoy into a new territory, humanity, on the face of this earth. Thus far, people would come up empty when it came to looking for a sense in which they could find fullness in life. Notice that the words here begin with, Behold, my servant. And what I want you to do at this moment is to draw a line back to the 41st chapter, verse 24, and notice what he says regarding the idols of the world at that time. Behold, in chapter 41, verse 24, Behold, you're nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. 
Now, what God is saying at this point is that people need to have an awareness of the fact that the natural tendency is to substitute something or someone for God. That's what the Garden of Eden was all about. The evil one was tempting Eve to substitute self for God. You will be like God. This is the issue of humanity. Who has the right to be the substitute? God will say, my servant has the right to be the substitute. There's another behold, and it's found in verse 29 of the prior chapter. Summing it up regarding the false gods of this world, God says, behold, beware, They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So now, not once, but twice, God thus far says, Behold, in other words, be aware. Everything that everybody is trying to produce and to pursue is simply a substitution of self-forget. What I am about to do, he begins now with his servant's song in 42, onward to 53, is to say that there is a better basis for substitution. It is not substituting self for God. It is God substituting self for humanity. But that would require two natures, human and divine, in one person to provide the adequate substitution. So notice how this unfolds. After he has delivered two beholds, challenging the culture, you're coming up empty by substituting self for God. He now says in verse 1 of chapter 42, Behold, note the repetition, my servant, my envoy. You pause. Now you begin to ask yourself some questions. Who is this one he's describing here? An envoy comes to do the will of the one who sends him. Jesus would say that I have come to do the will of the Father. Notice how it unfolds. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Where did this appear before? When you get to your New Testament, you're going to notice that in the baptism of Jesus Christ, this wording is used to describe and to attest Jesus as God the Father's envoy. You get to the point where further on down the road, you find Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration with Matthew, excuse me, with Peter, James, and John. And once again, a paraphrase of Isaiah 41 42, is delivered here, and now what we find are the disciples coming to grips with the fact that this envoy, the second member of the Trinity, is being described prophetically. He is God's chosen, in whom his soul delights. And now when you think about the dove, the Holy Spirit, coming down upon Jesus at the point of baptism, Connect that with what's here in 42, verse 1. I have put my spirit 
upon him. What God was doing at this point was attesting, this is my envoy. This is my servant. When Norman Schwarzkopf, General Schwarzkopf, described his experience at West Point, he developed these words. When I began as a plebe, duty, honor, and country were just a model. By the time I left, those values had become my fixed stars. It was a tremendous point of liberation. The Army, with its emphasis on rank and medals and efficiency reports, is the easiest institution in the world in which to get consumed with ambition Some officers spend all their time carrying favor and worrying about the next promotion. What an incredibly miserable way to live. But West Point saved me from that by instilling the idea of the servant. The ideal of service above self. To do my duty for my country, even if it brought no gain at all, it gave me far more than a military career. It gave me a calling in service. Now, what God the Father is saying about God the Son is that he has established a calling in service. Behold, My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Now think the baptism of Jesus Christ at this point, with John the Baptist standing at his side. I have put my spirit upon him. The Baptist, who was a prophet, proclaiming the way of the Lord, would find a connection with this prophet, would challenge with regard to the way of the Lord. And as that prophet John the Baptist would ponder the significance of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus Christ, you and I now examine this text very carefully and ponder the significance of the Spirit attesting to Jesus Christ. I've put my Spirit upon him. Now look what comes next. Not once, not twice, three times you're going to see the word justice used here. Each time you see it, I want you to think about and ponder and contrast the social social justice movement of today with the biblical justice ministry of scriptures. Where is there overlap? Where is there a gap? I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, the first of the three. The Hebrew word here for justice at this point is mishpat. It is rooted in the idea of the Torah, God's law, instruction in the way that you and I should go. Notice that it is God that is bringing forth this justice to the nations. 
And now with a great sense of humility in verse 2, notice the description of this Messiah eight centuries prior here being described. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's got no PR agency going for him. He's got no marketing strategy being laid out around him. There are no billboards being endorsed by him to put his picture up on some sign so that people can gaze and look and ponder what he's promoting. He is not a religious promoter. Instead, you and I are told here, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. One day, when I was sitting with Lawrence Sani, the former president of the Navigators, and he had been interviewed just recently in a Christian publication about how he could know when he had a servant attitude. His response was classic. The reply, by how you act when you are treated like one. Quote, unquote. Now, we bring this sense of servanthood and humility into the context of the family gatherings and the office gatherings in the midst of Advent. But now you bear in mind what is being described here. He will not play to the crowd. He's not seeking out the cameramen and the camerawomen. No. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And now, when you and I couple together the descriptive in verse 3 and 4, there's a connection of these verses. Notice the word here, a bruised reed. In 3, draw a line down to the word discouraged in 4. Furthermore, notice the word burning wick in 3. Draw it down to the word faint in verse 4. Both couplings come from the same Hebrew word. Now we tease it out. A bruised reed he will not break. In other words, he's not coming in that first advent, you see, to flex muscle. This is the suffering servant. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth, there's the second word again, justice, mishpat. He will not grow faint or discouraged, Till when he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now you ask, but Gary, how then do I compare the social justice movement culturally, socially, politically today with the biblical justice movement and ministry that God is articulating here in this verse? And here's the answer at the end of verse 4 it's his law. It's the Word of God. 
In other words, if you're trying to figure out what is truly just, it is what God has prescribed biblically. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait, how? For his law. And now he's describing global missions in a manner in which we are to understand the rich depth of God's will for our lives. Over 4,000 books have been written about Abraham Lincoln. But when the Dictionary of Congress compiler asked Lincoln to contribute his autobiographical sketch, he submitted it in about 50 words. Born February 12, 1809 in Hardin County, Kentucky. Education, comma, defective, period. Profession, comma, lawyer, period. Postmaster at very small office, period. Four times a member of the Illinois legislature, period. Member of the lower house of Congress, period. That's all. I think he left something out. But then I recall again and make that illustration connect with this too. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. You sense the humility here? That this one born with ultimate authority demonstrates authentic humility? Make it heard in the street. No marching bands, no billboards. The person who is biblically humble is the most secure of all people. They don't need marching bands to promote their achievements. And here you find now the security of sovereignty embodied in servanthood. Behold my servant. Now the world looks and they have to ponder, am I substituting self for God? Or am I substituting in such a profound way within my mindset the idea of God for self? Because the four servant songs lead to Isaiah chapter 53, where the suffering servant is found as the substitute for you and for me. And so he is building a case for legitimate substitution here through his servant. And you draw that out of verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And you've spotted the beholds of chapter 41 that produce emptiness. And now you see the behold of chapter 42, which produces fullness. And now you say to yourself, I'm hanging this week with a lot of people that are running on empty. And they're too busy substituting self for God. I have the opportunity to address their emptiness with fullness by talking about the God who substitutes self for us. But sometimes you're going to have to let them get to the point like the prodigal son. 
where he has that behold moment. He comes up empty, but there is awareness. Now, self-awareness, I can't produce. And once they reach that sense of self-awareness, then they're prepared for what I'll call God-awareness, where you flip it. And where they're trying to substitute self for God so they can gain fullness but come up with emptiness, you then say, well, let me tell you about this one we know is Jesus. And we talk about substituting God does his self for us, which produces fullness and wholeness. Isn't this beautiful? You're getting this out of the opening verses here. William Carey, in his incredible humility, once said, when I am gone, speak not of William Carey, but of William Carey's Savior. Humility. Coming from the lips of a man who had such a profound impact for God's glory. Now, verses 1 through 4 involve God presenting his servant to us. And verses 5 through 9 involve God speaking directly to his servant. The first behold, behold my servant, verses 1 through 4, it begins this section. The second behold, behold new things I now declare. End this section because you see it in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare. We make our way from the first behold in this section to the second. And what we are doing at this point is countering chapter 41, where the two beholds were people substituting self for God and experiencing emptiness. And now you've got the two beholds of chapter 42, where it's God substituting himself for us, and you're experiencing wholeness. He's got to build his case. He starts with the creation in verse 5. Thus says God. Hebrew word here, ha'el, speaks of the almighty God. Now, maybe you were raised in a religion, a denomination, or something where God seemed like a terrorist of some sort, all-powerful, but... How do I have a relationship with somebody with that degree of sovereign power? Isaiah couples it. Thus says Ha'el, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, which is the personal relational name for God. He has brilliantly connected the dots for you that your sovereign, all-powerful God is your sovereign, personal God. He is all-powerful and all-personal. Isn't that powerful? Thus says Ha'el, sovereign, powerful God, the Lord, the sovereign, personal God, who did what? Created the heavens and stretched them out. I love the way Ossie Spro puts it. St. Augustine taught that God created the world out of nothing for you Latin students, ex nihilo. But then he adds this. Creation was something like, like the magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. 
except God didn't have a rabbit. And he didn't have a hat. It's not something out of something. It's something out of nothing. And the Ha'el, your sovereign, powerful God, is Yahweh, your sovereign, personal God. So the one who can create the heavens and stretch them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, is now the personal one who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Is this your God? You need to connect Ha'el to Yahweh and not disconnect them. Now you get to verse 6. God's talking. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And what I would like you to do next is draw makes to another connection and connect the word light in verse 6 to the word darkness in verse 7. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in the darkness, and ponder what Chuck Colson once told. He was meeting with other Christian leaders and with President Borja of Ecuador to discuss prison fellowship, international's ministry in Ecuador in their penitentiaries. They had no sooner been seated in luxurious leather chairs and begun to speak when the president interrupted the conversation with this story. The story of his own imprisonment years before being elected to the presidency. He'd been involved in the struggle for democracy in Ecuador. The military cracked down. He was arrested without trial, thrown into a cold dungeon with no light, and no window. No one knew where he was. For three days he endured the solitary fear and darkness that can drive a person mad. Just when the situation seemed unbearable, the huge steel door opened and someone crept into the dark. Borgia heard the person working on something in the opposite corner. Then the figure crept out, closed the door, and disappeared. Minutes later, the room suddenly blazed with light. Someone, perhaps taking his life into his hands, had connected electricity to the broken light fixture. The darkness of the dungeon was gone. From that moment, explained President Borgia, my imprisonment had meaning because light overcame darkness. Now this week, people are going to be struggling with the meaning of life. The light overcomes the darkness. At the end of verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I am the light of the world, Jesus would say. 
to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, the former president of Ecuador, and nod his head. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then adds, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other as he looks back at the false gods of chapter 41. Well, we need a sense of the behold. They can't produce. And now we consider the God of chapter 42, the one who can produce. He is the A'el. He is the Yahweh. We tie it together, and then we get our behold. And the two beholds of chapter 42 then overtake the two beholds of chapter 41. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare. New creation people. New heavens, new earth, this sort of mentality. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now you've got your two beholds. You've linked them under the idea of what is promised about him in verses 1 through 9. Your two beholds counter the two beholds we noted in chapter 41, where people substitute self for God. Here is God substituting himself for us. What is promised about him, verses 1 through 9, then leads secondly to what is proclaimed about him in 10 through 13. Here it comes. Sing to the Lord a new song. What I want you to do is to draw a line from the phrase a new song in verse 10 to the phrase new things in verse 9. In verse 9, The former things have come to pass. That's old song singing. New things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, do you remember what we said prior weeks about the concept of the new song? That when an emperor had sent his prized military into a foreign land and conquered it, He would first of all have a new road established in his name that would link his throne to that setting. And then he would gather together composers to develop a victory song, a new song to be sung on that new road proclaiming the sovereignty of that emperor. Now, do you see what's happening here? This suffering servant three days later, being raised from the dead. We are new creation people. We are new song people. The old is gone. The new has come. And this happens via Bethlehem as you get to Calvary. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. This is global missions. You go down to the sea, all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Look what comes next. Let the desert, known today geographically as the Arabah, and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedah inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Pause. Right before the reading of this passage this morning, we sang corporately, Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain, 
that Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds kept their watching or silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. Go tell it on the mountain. The end of verse 11. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Understand the story behind the song. That's our strategy throughout this Advent season as we've examined the songs of Christmas. And get this. When John Wick was thinking carefully through this American folk song, he had just recently returned from the Alps there is an incredible custom among the Swiss mountain mountaineers. The alpine herdsman employ what he describes as the echoing horn, not merely as a call to their flocks, but also for worship gatherings. As soon as the sun disappears from the valleys and his last lingering rays are glimmering and glancing upon the snowy summits of the mountains, the shepherd who dwells in the loftiest pasture takes his horn and trumpets these, this thought, praise God the Lord. And then all the herdsmen on the neighboring cliffs of the mountains take their horns and repeat the chorus, praise God the Lord. This continues for several moments. While on all sides, as the shades of evening deepen, the mountain echoes the name of God the Lord. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. You catch your breath. You pause and you reflect upon what's being stated here. Verses 10 through 12, we sing a new song because we've been given a new road. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We have the conqueror who has now, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, become Lord of our lives. I no longer substitute myself for God. We consider the significance of God substituting himself, in particular, second member of the Trinity for us. The Garden of Eden was the tension of substitution where the evil one wants Eve to understand you can be like God. Just substitute self for God. But then it's countered at the cross of Jesus Christ who came there via Bethlehem. And he substitutes himself for us. The perfect sacrifice to natures, both humanity found in the womb of Mary and divinity tied to eternity past within the Godhead. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. 
Here, then, is the second part of this whole proclaiming about him. We sing of the Lord as the mighty warrior. This connects now the first coming to the second coming, that final day, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. Now you're connecting Matthew and the Bethlehem story to Revelation and the Armageddon story. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. And you've drawn all of that out of these 13 verses, you see. What's promised about him in 1 through 9? what's proclaimed about him in 10 through 13. But somehow, in some way, you've got to work through the stages of sharing the good news of Jesus with people who have got to come to grips with the fact of the behold, I'm coming up empty before they get to the behold. Jesus Christ brings fullness to my emptiness. It began by being called the white man. It moved to being called the respectable white man. Stage three, the white Indian. Until ending, here comes the man sent by God. And you see, the word servant at that time meant special envoy. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Connect the dots. Let's stand together. Eight centuries prior, this is astounding. How all of this connects, how all of this fits. Shepherd's story. Mountaineers. Go tell it on the mountain. A sense of behold, I'm coming up with emptiness but embracing the idea of behold Jesus and then embracing fullness. So if there's anybody in these services today who came in empty, absolutely empty, may they find their fullness in Jesus Christ, putting faith and trust exclusively in him alone. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.